Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Julia Shapiro to the show. Welcome, Julia. Thanks, Jeremy. Nice to be here. I've been asking folks who are some of the best sellers that they know, and Colin Day over at Octopost, who is the managing director in EMEA, had recommended I talk to Julia after she had a number of years of success followed by promotion into a leadership role. If you're not familiar with Octopost, they are a B2B social media management and employee advocacy platform. I was speaking with the CRO, Chief Revenue Officer over at Octopost about who her top AE was, and uh, she told me it was Julia. Julia has now, of course, been promoted over to Director of Sales, and she's Director of Sales North America. And Octopost, if you have not heard of them, is a B2B social media management and employee advocacy platform. As I've been doing a lot lately, I've been talking to top reps about what they learned along the way and, and some how-to that they can share with the audience. So that is where we're going to focus today. We'll start out by getting to know Julia with one of my favorite questions, which is, what is the first thing you remember selling when you were a kid? So it's actually a really embarrassing and kind of funny story. Back when I was about 13, my parents got my brother and I a Dance Dance Revolution, not the pad, but the actual arcade machine. And one of my friends had come over and I started charging her for dance lessons. And my mom was so upset, made me give the money back. But my dad was weirdly excited that I was making a profit off of her um, and off of teaching her how to use the DDR machine. Um, So that's kind of when I figured out I was kind of on to something that if I could make one of my friends pay me, like, I think it was like $20 an hour to teach her how to use this machine that maybe I could make money elsewhere. That's awesome. Well, at least your your dad was proud of you and that helped plant the sales seed in in your head. Well, yeah, I'd love to just get to know a little bit about some of the amazing people that you've worked with, great sellers that you've worked with, great managers you've worked with. You have sort of two interesting pieces of your your background that I think we don't talk about a lot on, have not talked about a lot on the podcast. One of them is your path through secondary school, through college. Love to hear your perspectives on where you went to school, why you made the choices you made. Jeremy, I am a scrappy, scrappy girl. You know, it's, it was actually something I was very embarrassed about for a very, very long time. I actually was a solid D student all throughout high school, hardly made it through and found myself as the only person amongst my friends that didn't go to a four-year college. And because I didn't go to a four-year college, I had to go to a junior college that was right down the street from my house, which was a commuter school. So as I'm sure you can understand as an 18-year-old who lost all of her friends to sororities and big universities, and I saw them having so much fun. I mean, this was way pre like Instagram and everything like that. But you know, I would I would still kind of come home and see them with all of their new friends. And it was definitely a moment of regret for me that I didn't take life a little bit more seriously. So I kind of doubled down into junior college and realized that I was absolutely miserable. And then later found out that I actually had dyslexia. And that was the reason for me just not being able to learn like a lot of the other students. So I was told by my one of my teachers my senior year of high school that I would work at Burger King for the rest of my life because I didn't take life seriously and that I just was not smart. 
And for a second, I kind of started to believe that. And then somehow found my way into tech sales and realized that that wasn't the truth. Education is something that everybody should absolutely experience. But at the same time, it's not for everybody. There are different paths in life that you can take and you can be equally as successful or more successful than a lot of the people that go down maybe the corporate ladder. So and the other thing I'm curious about is how does one not know, like, or how does one's parents not know that their kid is dyslexic? So I come from a little bit of a different background. My parents are both foreigners from Russia. Um, in communist Russia was very, very different than school in America. So nobody in my family went to college. So I think just growing up, it wasn't something that was enforced, whereas a lot of my friends parents went to very, very prestigious schools. And it was kind of a, it wasn't an option for them to not go to college. So I think for my parents, when I would ask them for help with homework, you don't learn the same things in Russia that you do in America. So they weren't really able to help me with my grammar because it was their second language. Like they moved to America in their 20s. I think on the business side, they were really able to help out because both of my parents are entrepreneurs and they're brilliant people. But academically, it's just it's just a different world. Got it. So, you know, you go to college, uh, get through community college, and then you don't go directly into B2B sales. That was the other kind of fascinating thing is I love to talk to people who have retail experience, you know, not just any retail experience, but you were actually a shoe salesperson. Do you remember the most unusual customer that you ever had selling shoes? Have you ever been to a Nordstrom? They're full of unusual customers. <laughs> I mean, listen, so I actually managed a shoe department. So I wasn't selling as much as I was managing a team of 20. So Nordstrom is known for having a very lenient return policy. You would have people come to like the designer shoe department and take back a pair of shoes that, I mean, they were like probably $1,100, $1,200 pair of shoes that they came back and they said, oh, well, these these aren't comfortable anymore. And it's like, okay, well, you walked the Great Wall of China in them. So clearly, <laughs> clearly they're not going to be comfortable for you anymore. And so that started happening a lot. And we had to actually change the return policy for designer back then. I could go down a rabbit hole of all the interesting people that I met. Although it becomes a formative sales experience and management experience, what, what was uh, or so what was maybe one of the useful things that you learned about sales working in a retail environment? maximizing your sale. That was the number one thing that I learned. So for example, I worked in when I started at Nordstrom, I was in the juniors department. And of course, the price point is going to be a lot lower than working in designer. <laughs> so you can sell one designer piece and that would be like a week's worth of work for me. So I started selling into different departments, right? So if somebody came in and said, Oh, you know, I need a pair of jeans or a shirt oh, well, where are you going, right? And started asking those questions that would later on help me in B2B sales is really figuring out, okay, well, maybe it's not just for a weekend, but maybe it was for a trip. So let's get an airplane flight outfit for you, right? Like, let's get all of the dinners and swimsuits or whatever you need. Oh, do you need shoes? Okay, well, let's get socks, right? Okay, you need socks. Okay, well, let's get, you know, uh, shoe inserts for yourself as well. So it was really just taking one little thing and maximizing your sales. So instead of a $100 sale, I do a $2,000 sale. So it was very, very rewarding. So, okay. So, so you, you did your, your uh, maximizing the sale experience over at Nordstrom, and then you were able to make the hop into B2B tech sales. How did that opportunity come about? So random. So 
my ex-boyfriend's friend was a manager at a software company called Acton. And I would always complain because I'd always have to meet up with them after I got off of work on the weekends. And after a shift on a Saturday, I was exhausted. I didn't really want to be around people. And I wanted so badly to have a Monday through Friday, nine to five. I wanted to be able to enjoy the holidays, the weekends. I didn't have to miss out on weddings and birthday parties. And so this girl, which I'll keep unnamed, but she's still a friend of mine. She kind of said, hey, listen, I know that you're tired of working retail. I run an SDR team. You're basically going to be a glorified telemarketer, but you'll get your Monday through Friday job if you want to do that. I said, okay, well, what are the hours? And she said, oh, like you can work either seven to four, eight to five. And I was like, oh, it's Monday through Friday. And she said, yeah. And I said, I'll take it. Let's do it. I'll figure it out. <laughs> so she, I, I came my first day. I knew nothing, absolutely nothing. Was that uncomfortable for you or was easy breezy? It was pretty easy because I had already kind of done it at Nordstrom. It's crazy how many things from retail I took into that SDR position. Was mastering the acronyms and the tech speak any challenge at all? I mean, again, going back to the dyslexia, yes, it was very difficult. I mean, for the first few months, I was I didn't know if I had made the right decision. Um, in fact, I remember my parents were telling me not to go into tech sales because they were saying, you know, Nordstrom is such a big company. You have so much security there. You can move to Seattle and go corporate. Why would you go work at a startup? That's insane. And I just had my eye on the bigger price, which was eventually, you know, getting out of the SDR position and working my way up, which is eventually what happened. Someone set your expectations properly, which is you're going to be, I hate to say it, but like you're going to be in a glorified telemarketing position and you're and you're going to work your butt off for 12 to 18 months. I think that an SDR, like that was one of the most important roles that I ever did in my entire life. Like it, it taught me more than probably being an account executive. And I think it's an extremely important role for an organization because they're on the front lines, right? It's It's hard. It's really, really hard to be an SDR. And I think a lot of people... Don't realize that. I mean, since you have the perspective as both an SDR and an AE and a sales manager, right? You've had all those perspectives. Every once in a while, you know, you'll read a, a post on LinkedIn or you'll hear someone saying, just like they say, cold calling is dead and social selling is alive or dead, whatever. Pick your thing of the day. They'll say like the SDR thing or outbound SDR is dead. I think I read that recently. The argument of this person, of the person who posted this was, you know, you've got a whatever it is, 22-year-old kid who was just selling shoes or managing people selling shoes at Nordstrom, picking up the phone, trying to call a VP and convince them that they got to go talk to someone about marketing automation, like that a 22-year-old kid shouldn't, shouldn't be doing that. Would you reinvent the way that we, the predictable revenue model that we're all segmented in these days? I mean, how do they know you're 22, right? I think if you have the business acumen, which again, you have to learn, and I think if you carry yourself well, and again, fake it till you make it, why not? Right? It's, it's really all about how you position yourself and how you say it. One of the things I think that can make SDRs and AEs so much more useful in those interactions is it's not just dialing for meetings. It's actually to try to bring some value of some kind along the way, you know, either at Acton or at Octopost or even, you know, anywhere you were in between. Are there things that you try to do top of the funnel to truly create value beyond, do you have 15 minutes to take a meeting with me? 
I don't like taking that approach to begin with working in such a virtual space. I mean, like there really isn't that much in-person meeting in tech sales, right? Especially software as a service. You're basically on Zoom. Obviously you have events sometimes, but it kind of takes away that personal experience. I'm huge on the relationship building and that's not going to win you the sell, but at least I think it could get your foot in the door. I think if you look at a lot of other industries, so for example, real estate, right? It's all about relationships. My boyfriend's actually in commercial real estate. So I look at the way that he builds relationships with brokers. It's not something that you can just give a broker a call one day and say, hey, find me a piece of property or find me a piece of land. That's not how it works. This is years and years of building these relationships. And I think taking that very similar approach in software sales right? It's not just calling somebody one time and saying, Hey, I want a 15 minute meeting. It's connecting with them first, like warming them up a little bit, right? And then nurturing them. So kind of like what you would be doing on the marketing side, and then eventually getting to know them and then pitching your product along the way. And then guess what? Marketing changes departments all the time. So they go to a new company and who are they going to reach out to? Probably you. It speaks to, I think, two things. One is longevity in a company. Uh, that you've joined so that you are building those relationships so that you're building that subject matter expertise where you can actually add value before you you engage people. But then longevity, I think, within industries as well. You know, and you're definitely demonstrating that at, at Octopus. You're you're now over over four years there. What are some things that, you know, you've noticed after you kind of get some good tenure under your belt? Because a lot of AEs jump, right? They'll jump ship very, very fast. And I guess they're chasing a higher OTE. But I feel as though they leave so much behind. So like, what are, the, what are some of the benefits you've already experienced in, in staying longer? Well, it's funny because I've worked for Octopus for four years, but I was actually, Octopus is a partner of Acton. So I've known the CEO for a very long time. I think the number one thing is being passionate about the product shows on your calls. If you don't absolutely love and believe in what you're selling, it's going to be really difficult for you to convey that sell and that value add when you're on the call. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said AEs jump every couple of years to chase maybe a larger OTE. What I learned <laughs> by kind of trial and error, an OTE, I'm not saying it means nothing, but it's very, very just, I don't know, it's like a buzzword. I mean, you can give me a 200K based salary, right? But what if I only sell 20K on top of that? Versus give me a 60K base salary and let me hit 500K in sales, right? Meaning 500K that I would actually bring home. So for me, it's it's not so much about the OTE. It's what's the potential of the actual product of the actual company? Like, where do I see that company going in the next few years? That's something that at least when I interview people, I have them really think about. You can go to a larger company and most likely get a higher salary, but that salary means nothing if you're a small fish in a big pond. There are some companies who do this, and I wish there were more who did it, where they, when they make you an offer, they actually offer you two different comp plans, right? So like, let's say you do one where, you know, you get a 50K base and a 50K bonus, but with unlimited upside, or you offer them like 80 plus 20, you might actually screen people in and out by the way they answer that, that question because you may want the more risk-loving people because they're more, they have more confidence in themselves. Uh, so it's an interesting screening question, although it's a little dastardly. But I, yeah, there are some companies that will do that. They'll sort of offer you two different comp plans. And I 
talk to young AEs, they want to push as high as they can. And I'm like, no, you want as much variable comp as you possibly can if you believe in the product and you want that uncapped. Exactly. And that's kind of what I also try to convey to AEs that are coming on. It's, hey, you need to bet on yourself. If you say you're as good of a salesperson, prove it, right? If you're getting an 80K base, but you have 5% commission on everything you're closing versus a 70K base, that 10K means nothing if you're getting 15% commission, right? You'll make that up in one deal. I want you to shifting gears slightly. I'd I love for you to reflect on like the best rep that you knew. What makes that individual special? I think it's honestly just positivity. Always staying positive and thinking outside the box, right? If somebody says no, how can you turn that no into a yes, right? It's like, it's not taking the no personally. It's saying, okay, well, huh, now how can we start selling right now? I also think one of my mentors at a previous company told me, never get too high and never get too low. Cruise in the middle, cool as a cucumber. So I think that's really an important mindset to have, not to get happy ears and to take everything with a grain of salt, but always stay positive. Right? I, I really think that, that that's the number one thing in closing deals is just knowing you'll do it and do it. On the no part, Mostly I read on the Kindle, but I also listen to some books too. So I've been listening to this book called That Will Never Work by Mark Randolph. I had never heard of Mark Randolph, but he was actually the original CEO of Netflix. And he gives a kind of fascinating inside take, but he was describing the first one of the first jobs he ever applied to. I think he was a geology major in college, but he really wanted to go into marketing. And he applied for a job as an account manager at an, at an ad agency. He was one of the finalists for the job. And then they said no. And he describes how he then sent basically, I probably was a long time ago, so letters, actual physical letters to all the people that had interviewed, had interviewed him. And he said, like, I'm not trying to get the job or anything. I just want to know. I'm early in my career. I just want your advice on what could I have done differently? What can I learn? One of the people who was one of the most senior people in the ad agency replies back to him and says, yep, you know, let's meet, come in next Tuesday, 2 p.m. And it turns out that they had dinged, there were five finalists, they had dinged all five. And the guy offered him the job on the spot because he said, look, this is an account manager job. It, they basically dinged the people and were waiting to see which one would actually try to flip them around. So, so he got the job by, uh, by you know, not taking no for an answer. There must be times though in sales where you where like you do have to take the no. So how do you judge those times where you push versus when you let it lie? I mean, you're not going to win every deal, but maybe no means no right the second. It doesn't mean no infinitively, right? Like find out when that no could be a yes. Maybe there's a distinction between early no's and like an early no might be you're trying to pitch me really, really early on discovery meeting or something. And I say, you know what? That's just not a fit. I'm not interested versus we're a month or two in, right? We've gone through a lot together, uh, you know, as buyer and seller. And at that point, I'm no, and that no could be due to no decision. It could be due to competitor. Like that's a different kind of no, I would, I would assume. Yeah. There isn't a one size fits all. So it's really understanding where the no is coming from, right? It's, it's okay to find out more, but it's also all about how you ask. And I think, again, there isn't a one size fits all for every company. It's really understanding who you're selling to their personality right? And figuring out what made them say that. And how can I maybe take what they said and create a yes, 
or at least a let's talk next month. And if next month still doesn't work, that's fine. Follow up the the next month. But it's always just keeping in contact with them. Like at the end of a quote unquote end of a deal, right? Let's say you it's often you and a competitor, right, who are finalists. It's it's rare that it's totally non-competitive. But let's say it's you and a competitor and the and the person gives you the dreaded call. Uh, hey, can we talk unscheduled, which usually means they're that you're probably going to get a no. And, you know, they tell you we, we're deciding, you know, we've decided to go with your competitor. Like, have you ever tried to turn that around? Have you ever been able to successfully turn that around? How, how should reps think about that? Yeah, I mean, listen, that happens all the time, right? But it's it's, again, understanding why. Like where in the sales process did they make that decision and why? That's the most important part. And listen, even if it is a firm decision and they say, hey, we're going with competition, I really truly like to understand why they made that choice just so I can either improve my sales cycle and the way that I sell. Maybe it's something product related where it was completely out of our control and they said, hey, we like this and this and this better in the other product. Or maybe there was an executive relationship and there was really nothing we could have done. But I think that feedback is crucial. It's also establishing that relationship along the way that you are very transparent with the person that you're working with so they feel comfortable. I think the worst thing that you can do as a rep is make them come off as defensive, right? Because nobody likes that. And the person on the other line doesn't like telling you no. They don't want to make that call just as bad as you don't want to listen to that call. And the worst thing that you can do is make it negative, right? So it's all about handling that with just care and empathy. And that makes the other person just relax a little bit and feel more comfortable working with you. And then you can really find out the true answers of truly, truly why they went another direction or why they were considering. To your point, it's so critical to know those things early on and to have the relationship where they will share those things with you. Uh, the the longtime but now former chief revenue officer of Log Me In once told me that he, when they did the deal reviews there, he would have the reps have this basically checkbox in Salesforce and it was, are we winning? But he also expected the reps to ask, to have the relationship with their prospect that they could check in in that way and ask, are we winning? Would you be comfortable asking that question to your prospects? Why not? Yeah. I mean, listen, it's a person at the other end of the call, right? So the way I position it to my team, at least, is if you can't pick up the phone and call your prospect and ask them for a favor down the road, like let's say you're in another cell where you need a referral and you can't call your customer and say, hey, listen, like I'm in the middle of this deal. Is there any way you can put in a good word? You don't have a champion, right? Like it's crucial to have a champion at every single deal that you're working. Yeah, why not? You're asking a very valid question. Kind of turning to you, I mean, super successful year after year, and then ultimately, you know, promoted to leadership position over at Octopost. What's your secret superpower? Like you talked about positively, positivity earlier on, but is uh, what, what's another superpower of yours? I really think it's treating people how they want to be treated, right? Empowering people, especially in the cell, right? So every person that you work with should leave a conversation with you feeling very positive and important, valuable, right? So however you're going to do that, I think that's a huge key in winning deals. Even if it's the most bottom line person that you're talking to, make them feel like a rock star. It's all about how you make them feel. I have people in my life where I can't wait to spend time with them because I always leave feeling better. 
people don't remember what you say. They make they remember how you make them feel. Well, you know, now that you are in a leadership role, I, I have zero doubt that you're you're hiring. So what if people do want to get a chance to work with you? What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? We are hiring like crazy. Um, honestly, LinkedIn. I'm super active on LinkedIn. But I always say, like, you know, you're also applying for a sales position. So stand out, right? I, I love when people think outside the box and when they're a little bit more creative, direct message me, send me a video, do what do what you need to do. But I'm I'm always here to talk. Well, you and I have 200 mutual connections, so you are clearly hyperactive on on LinkedIn. So Julia, that was it was so great to chat with you. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast.